Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Psst. Hey, it's me, your barista. So, you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, now in stores. It's foaming delicious. Episode 198 of The Bowery Boys, the history of Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for The Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to The Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And on today's show, we're going to be inspecting the history of a neighborhood, a neighborhood of unusual character and one on the cusp of rapid change. It's a neighborhood with a colorful past and even a colorful name. That name would be Greenpoint, that little old neighborhood in the northernmost section of Brooklyn. You say little old, Greg, but it's really not that old. In fact, it's amazing to consider all the change that has taken place in this relatively small area in the past 150 years. It's it's gone from bucolic farmland to hipster haven, although it's a neighborhood that hasn't quite yet been overrun by artisanal eateries and fuzzy cafes. (laughs) Not entirely. It's actually one of my favorite neighborhoods in New York City. There's just something about it. There's a certain remoteness to it. It's a mix of industrial architecture, 19th century townhouses, then avenues of rich Polish culture mixed in, of course, next to that unusual body of water called Newtown Creek. (laughs) And the East River. And the East River. (laughs) And I like how you call it remote. There's something remote about the neighborhood. Perhaps residents might point out that that has something to do with their lousy transportation. (laughs) But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, This is a neighborhood that's been vital to the development of shipbuilding, oil refineries, even pencil production. So join us as we embark upon the story of a neighborhood that's gone from artisan ships to artisan drips. Join us as we explore the history of Greenpoint, Brooklyn.
So, Tom, let me situate Greenpoint, Brooklyn, for those who may not uh, exactly know where it is on the map. It is, as I said in the intro, the northernmost neighborhood in Brooklyn. Kind of easy to visualize. It's tucked into a corner, framed to the west, of course, by the East River, to the south and east by the neighborhood of Williamsburg. Although in the East... Hey, boy, you have the BQE in the East. Yeah, yeah and, it's, and then they call it sometimes East Williamsburg. There's some Bushwick and everything. But then the, on the North, what separates it from Queens is the old Newtown Creek. Now, this is, deserves its own podcast one day very soon. It's a fascinating body of water. It's a 3.5-mile waterway that separates Brooklyn from Queens. Incredibly polluted due to generations of industry along the waterfront, some of which we'll discuss here. Right. There's a lot of stink and sludge coming your way in the show. <laughs> it's very similar, I guess, to Gowanus Creek in the neighborhood of Gowanus, a Superfund site. That's with a D. Superfund. <laughs> it, it, can, it can be super fun, depending on your enjoyment of industrial chemicals. Uh, according to the Newtown Creek Alliance, each year the creek suffers from, quote, Millions of gallons of combined sewage overflow, a mixture of rainwater runoff, raw domestic sewage, and industrial wastewater that overwhelms treatment plants every time it rains. There are also discharges from numerous permitted and unpermitted pollution sources, unquote. So that is okay, the... Tell me that that's the dirtiest <laughs> that this show is going to get. Pretty dirty. And we're going to re- probably return to this filthiness at the end of the show. But that is the northern border of Greenpoint. And yet, for all of this kind of disturbing activity... Greenpoint is now currently a magnet for development and has been, I guess, for the past couple decades, but we're entering a new phase here. A magnet for new development, because, of course, today's story is all about the development and the industry that took place in Brooklyn in the 19th century and early 20th. But erase all of that from your mind right now, Tom, because I'm going to go back almost 400 years ago, back to when the Newtown Creek was a pleasant tidal waterway. Mm. And of course, the banks of the Newtown were home to the native Lenape, who made this area their home. Naturally, when the Dutch came, uh, when they settled at New Amsterdam at the tip of Manhattan, a body of water such as this would have been very appealing to early Dutch settlers. In 1638... The director general of New Amsterdam at the time, William Kieft, actually purchased land from the Lenape. Purchase. Is that purchase with air quotes around it? Yes, because they, both parties in that case had different meanings of what really purchased meant, right? right? So there were several authorized settlements throughout the harbor. And one of the places was here along this creek, which the Dutch called Middenburg. Later, the British renamed it Newtown. And so that's where the creek gets its name, is because it, it was a new town. Wait, so that's just the name of the creek itself, the Newtown Creek. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about Greenpoint? Dare I ask, was there a point and was it green? There indeed was a green point. This particular protrusion of land to, to visualize where it might have been was along the shore at around Freeman Street today in Greenpoint, or if you're in Manhattan, around 23rd Street. So if 23rd Street were there... 300 years ago, and you looked across the water, you would see this outstretch of land into the water. In the northwest corner. In the northwest corner. Of of Greenpoint. Right. So from a history, which I'll mention a little bit later, written in 1919 by William Felder, he said, quote, 
Near where the foot of Freeman Street now lies, a point of land jutted abruptly beyond the shoreline into the river for a considerable distance. This point, covered with river ooze and green grass, naturally attracted the gaze of the sailors on passing vessels, who gave to this verdant projection the name of Green Point, unquote. Did you just say river ooze? River ooze. I, I can't ima- I imagine it was a more pleasant ooze than that which rumbles upon the shores today, though. So. <laughs> but this was 17th century this river was, ooze. Right, 17th century river ooze. But when did the settlers from New Amsterdam and from gre- the greater New Netherland area start living over here? Well, by the 1640s, so almost 365 years ago, came the first European settler to this area, a man named Dirk Volkersten, a better known by his friends as Dirk the Norman, uh, for he was of Nordic background. He was a ship's carpenter, which comes into play a lot in this neighborhood and later in the story. He was so associated with this area as the first European resident of this area that it was actually originally called Norman Point or Norman's Point. And and this isn't because he was from Normandy. He was Norwegian. So I think he came from Norse man. Norse, right. Norse. We're going to move on from from Dirk because by by 1664, when the English took over New York Harbor, the land here eventually was turned over to a Huguenot from Holland, Huguenot being French Protestants. His name was Peter Perret. And for the next 100 years, through marriage, his descendants would actually dominate and control much of the land of today's Greenpoint, his daughters being Elizabeth, Maria, Christina, and Nettie. And then later, a fifth farm would be divided up for his granddaughter, Janetti. So they would marry into these various families, most notably, which you'll talk about in a minute, the Meserols. So this is Peter Prey. Peter Prey. Would his descendants set up the Peter Pran donut shop <laughs> that would be on Manhattan Avenue later? You mean Peter Pan donuts? Oh, that's Peter Pan. Okay, sorry. Well, I, I, I don't know if I would have a, a typo. Well, I don't know if I would have a donut shop in honor of him because another thing I should mention is that these being the early days of New York, pre-revolutionary war, these families all held slaves. In fact, Prey was probably one of the biggest slaveholders in the area of King's County. And I just think it should be noted that the landowners here would continue to have slaves up until the moment that slavery was abolished in New York in 1824. One thing I need to add, of course, is by the late 18th century, that there were a few settlements in the area of what we call Brooklyn today. Administratively, this area of Green Point, mm-hmm. although simply a small collection of farms by essentially one family, was administratively part of the town of Bushwick. Which, and help me here with the geography, but Bushwick would be just southeast of where Greenpoint is today. Back in this period, the area which we call Kings County today, which mm-hmm. is the county that... That is compri- today's Brooklyn. Today's Brooklyn had only a few small towns within it at this particular period of time. Of course, you had the port town of Brooklyn itself, which was around the Fulton Ferry area. And today's Brooklyn Heights. Yes. The previously mentioned Bushwick. And then Gravesend, Flatbush, Flatlands, and New Utrecht. So these were the first six towns of what then would comprise today's Brooklyn. So something like the settlement of Greenpoint with its small collection of farms would be part, administratively part, of one of these six towns. Right, of Bushwick. 
but by the early 19th century here, it was still not developed in any meaningful way. They would even call this area of Greenpoint, they called it the garden spot of the world, was a nickname that was thrown well, at it. quite a claim. But all of this would be about to change, and it would change thanks principally to one individual, a man that I call the godfather of Greenpoint, Tom, Oh, and his name is Naziah Bliss. Right, I guess we're going from tranquil bliss to Naziah Bliss <laughs> here in one fell swoop. And not as blissful, actually. Yes, indeed, Bliss would be one of the most important people ever in Greenpoint's history. But before we get to kind of where he does his big thing in the 1830s and 40s, let's pull back, okay, about 40 years to the 1790s. Bliss was born in Connecticut in 1790. He was an entrepreneur, a steamboat builder, along with Robert Fulton. And he even headed out into the Wild West to explore. So he was a sort of Renaissance man on a mission. While still a young man, he returned to New York in the 1820s, and he saw great potential for this area of today's Greenpoint as a shipbuilding center, because he looked just south of here in Williamsburg and saw what was happening there, which was really a sort of response to what was happening and had been happening across the river in the, in the Lower East Side. And what he saw with the opening of the Erie Canal in the 1820s and the explosion of the local economy, right, in the late 20s and 1830s, and New York's march northward and Mm -hmm. and just industry booming. Well, these shipyards that had been down on the Lower East Side were suddenly very valuable tracts of land. Why would you want to build ships? That takes up a lot of space, right, to store all the lumber, to have all the guys, to have the docks and everything. That's an area that that could better be used for storing of goods, for importing and exporting. Still for boats and docks, right, and vessels, but for commerce. And this area on the Lower East Side had, since the British period, Mm. been a place for building ships, this Corlears Hook area. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense if you see that industry kind of just simply floating over to the other side of the water over on the Brooklyn side. Right. It was just too valuable on the Manhattan side. So there it was in Williamsburg. And for more on Williamsburg's story, you have a a show from several years ago that uh, one can listen to on the history of Williamsburg. So back to Bliss. He's looking down there. Uh, He's seen what's happening in Williamsburg. He's looking north of it in this Greenpoint area of farms. And he's thinking, I want in on that. So what he does is he marries in to the Meserol family, which is a family that basically owns most of the farms up here. Well, I mean, I guess that's just how you did it back in the day. If you wanted to, <laughs> you wanted to buy some land, you just got just, in good with the got in good with the head of the clan, and you married Mary. Her, <laughs> Mary was her name, Mary. eighteen year old Mary. Um, who was the daughter of John Meserol. I don't expect anybody to keep this straight, but there's a whole mess of Meserols here. So in 1832, he purchased 30 acres of farmland, much of it along the waterfront in Greenpoint. And, the, and in the ensuing years, he would continue buying up farms near Newtown Creek, even on the other side um, in today's Long Island City. The development in Long Island City that he would buy would eventually go by his own name. They called it Blissville. Sometimes people even refer to that area today as Blissville. So that's old Naziah. 
But he had a problem. Okay, so he owned all of this land, but it was really not that valuable unless people could get to it. There was like a rowboat that you could take to go back and forth between uh, the east side and Greenpoint, but that was about it. And I know that some people listening right now are thinking, well, hold on a second. If you're on Greenpoint, you can just walk south into Williamsburg. Why couldn't people just come up from Williamsburg Mm -hmm. into Greenpoint? And it's because there was a creek there. There was a body of water that separated the two neighborhoods, and that was Bushwick Creek. And it's amazing that today, part of the transportation woes that people have in Greenpoint, it really all connects back to this early period of development because things developed around the obstacles of the early 19th century. Right. And that obstacle being this creek here that ran straight along, if you can imagine, where Franklin Street in in Greenpoint hits today's Kent Street in Williamsburg. That intersection was not there. That intersection was a bridge. And he built that bridge in 1839. That same year, he spent $20,000 on a turnpike that went straight down the western side of his development near the water and over his bridge and connected it to Williamsburg. And that turnpike is today's Franklin Avenue. It really is extraordinary how this one individual, of course, with the support of the Meserolles, really did create a neighborhood out of this farmland. In fact, he also plowed through Greenpoint Avenue, which connected into his developments over in Queens. But he didn't just do it by himself, because as you mentioned, he had the Meserolles on his side. They were family, after all. And one of the members of the family, another patriarch figure in Greenpoint, was Adrian Meserol. In 1846, he saw what his brother-in-law had been doing, because Bliss had bought these properties just 10 to 15 years before. And Adrian Meserol, still holding on to a big swath of farmland, which was the Meserol family orchard, what remained of it, he decided to chop down the family's old fruit trees and divide up the plots as well and start selling them off. He built more than 60 homes and stores, and this area was even referred to as the orchard, as it had developed out of this this fruit farm. And the first road that he cut, the first lane that he cut through his orchard, became today's Meserol Avenue. And as a matter of fact, while they were laying out these streets, you know, Mm -hmm. they have a, many of the streets actually have a sort of orderly grid plan. Well, they decided at some point to name those streets something sort of clever, something memorable. Now, part of this was because as this area was getting bigger, so too was Williamsburg. And so there were a lot of like street names that were pretty much the same. So they had to come up with some clever names that appeared nowhere else in Mm -hmm. Kings County. So sure enough, in this little grid plan, they came up with a list, of, a list of street names that were in alphabetical order, starting from the north, Ash Street, Box Street, Clay Street, DuPont Street, Eagle Street, Freeman, Green, Huron, India, Java, Kent, and of course, then Greenpoint Avenue today cuts through there, and then Milton, Noble, and Oak. Now, some of those other names, though, as you, as you might guess, were tied into some of the industry that came to Greenpoint. Right, because by this point, so we're in the end of the 1840s, the 1850s, there were some jobs and there were some new industries coming. Those first big industries that came in were the shipyards. 
And this takes us back to Bliss and his original vision for the neighborhood. These men would be the first to set up shipbuilding enterprises here in Greenpoint, and that would attract a whole wave of immigrants who were, at this point, looking for jobs. And these were skilled jobs because building a ship, it demanded all kinds of different workers and different businesses. There were there were lumber yards and lumber specialists. There were ironworks that were needed to forge different, you know, giant pieces of metal. Rope makers, sail makers, lots of ancillary businesses to building ships. Probably the most famous shipyard of them all in Greenpoint opened in 1851 at West and Collier Streets. I'm talking, Greg, of course, about the Continental Ironworks. No, I'm not really up on all of my ironworks exactly, like the most famous ones, but I have heard of this one. But why is it exactly the most among the most famous? Well, probably because of the construction of one giant important vessel uh, in 1861, 1862. That would be the USS Monitor. The Monitor was the first ironclad ship that was built in the North for warfare. It was constructed in an astonishing 101 days. I think this is one of the more cooler details that you learn in high school about the Civil War is the is the creation of these ironclads. Mm-hmm. Because they were almost impenetrable. They mm-hmm. were these new kinds of ships that could withstand heavy bombardment. And the South already had their own ironclad ships. The North was lacking one. They didn't really know how to build one. And it took a Swedish-born engineer named John Ericsson to, to build this here in Greenpoint. So another Scandinavian brings fame and fortune here to thriving Greenpoint. Yes. And like a Scandinavian with an out of control, legendary intellect. And as I read in this amazing book about Greenpoint that I would recommend to anybody, uh, just came out. It's called Greenpoint Brooklyn's Forgotten Past by Jeffrey Cobb. He writes about John Erickson having mastered Euclidean geometry back in Sweden at the age of 10. Uh, and was surveying and engineering a canal project called the Gota Canal when he was 11. And by the time he was 14, he was a senior engineer and in charge of 600 workers. (laughs) He was that kind of smart. Doogie Howser of his day. (laughs) Right. Just meets Ikea. (laughs) Doogie meets Ikea. I hope it was better put together than a piece of Ikea furniture, though. He just had illustrations. Nothing but... (laughs) And pegs. And an Allen wrench. So this famous ship was actually built here right off the coast of Greenpoint. He did it by subcontracting, which was this revolutionary new idea. He had different foundries making different things for the ship and then assembling the whole thing here at Continental Ironworks. I think lovers of history know the Monitor, but his name is a a little forgotten these days, right? Well, you can still visit Erickson if you'd like to in Greenpoint. Head over to McGulrick Park, which opened in 1891 and is a lovely, leafy, old-fashioned city park with beautiful old trees and a classical pavilion, you know, those stone Mm -hmm. pavilions. The park has winding paths and benches and a playground and everything, but it also has two notable sculptures. One is a World War I monument honoring the Greenpoint soldiers who fought in the war, but the other is a reclining figure who commemorates the Battle of the Monitor and the Merrimack. And the statue was created and placed in honor of Erickson. So you can visit Erickson in McGulrick Park. 
So honoring one of Greenpoint's greatest creations, one of its greatest minds and job creators here, I guess. Right. Well, there are a number of job creators that we should talk about. Lots of industry has happened, especially during this period at the end of the 19th century. And we don't have time to go into all of them. But we certainly cannot leave Greenpoint without talking about Charles Pratt who in 1867 started his big claim to fame in this neighborhood, the Astral Oil Works. Astral sounds otherworldly. Well, in a way, it was it was revolutionary because they produced uh, lighting fuel, you know, for lamps and for other uses that was odorless, and it was considered to be safer than other lighting oil that was out at the time. And his factory here, his refinery, would be considered really the first modern oil refinery in the entire country. So clearly successful with the Astral product here. So successful, of course, that he became a target for one John D. Rockefeller, who was keeping his eye on all things oil in the 1860s and, and competitors, 19, right? In 1870s, right. And he he represented big oil and his giant Standard Oil company was going around uh, the country and snatching up any small successful company like Pratt's that he could find. They were so big and he had these sort of like underhand dealings with railroads for shipping, Rockefeller did, that he could basically drive other people out of the market because he was getting special rates on transport, which was the big cost mm-hmm. of the oil in the first place. So there was a, this is a whole story that we can get into <laughs> some other time, but let's just say that Pratt initially fought Rockefeller tooth and nail, resisted him, and he and his partner, Henry Rogers, decided in 1874 that basically, look, if they didn't sell out to Rockefeller, then they were going to go down. And he was going to take down, perhaps, the careers of the people uh, who he employed right here in, in Greenpoint. Reading about Pratt, one gets the impression that he was a really decent and nice guy. And he was always considering the consequences of uh, his business. So he sold out. So this is a very familiar refrain in the Gilded Age here, certainly. Right. Although he did something that only a few other Gilded Age millionaires did. I'm thinking of Carnegie and others. He sought then to still elevate the conditions of the people who worked at his factory at Astral Oil Works. So in 1886... 12 years after he sold out to Rockefeller, and while he was still on the board of his company and of Standard Oil, he opened up the Astral Apartments, which are located along Franklin from Java to India Street. These apartments, uh, which are still there today, were built really with a philosophy in mind, and that was to give uh, his workers a better place to come home to, a healthy home environment, because he had this belief that uh, you could eradicate poverty and crime if you gave people better living conditions. And so he built this structure. Have You've seen it, right? You've seen the Astral Apartments. I think it's one of the more interesting buildings of Greenpoint, just simply because that word Astral, is, it's so large and striking in front of the building. Mm-hmm. And because that's not really a brand name that anyone even remembers, it's just, uh, it's mysterious. Well, it's also a beautiful building. Mm-hmm. It's a six-floor red brick building uh, that's built in the Queen Anne style. So you've got these like lovely Victorian flourishes all over the place. And they have even, you know, some niches down on the corners where today there's a laundromat and there's a restaurant in the other one. So it's practical. When it opened, however, it had additional things, you know, that were unheard of for 
working class tenants, like indoor plumbing and bathrooms, but also things like daycare and social services mm. for the tenants. We hardly have that today. <laughs> now, is this Charles Pratt the very same Charles Pratt that started Pratt Institute, the college in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn? Those are the same Pratt dollars, his, his legacy living on today. So the Astro Building is one of the more famous, more interesting-looking buildings mm -hmm. of the Greenpoint area, but actually so is the Pencil Building, the building that belonged to a notable pencil manufacturer. Yes, I think you're talking about Eberhard Faber. <laughs> Eberhard Faber. Yes. Say that five times fast. <laughs> but I think in Germany they say Faber. Faber. But right, we say Faber here, right? Or do we say Faber? You I, say Faber, I'll say Faber. I don't know, I'll pencil it in. I'm trying to make a point. <laughs> Not a sharp one, but a point nonetheless. <laughs> in any case, Faber. Faber was born in Bavaria in 1822. He was born into sort of a pencil dynasty, for his grandfather has, had started the pencil business uh, back in Germany in 1761. So this big factory, right, that he had was actually not in Greenpoint at first. It was on East 42nd Street, and it was there for a couple decades. But on May 29th, 1872, a fire ravaged that four-story East 42nd Street factory, and it destroyed more than $250,000 worth of pencils. Whoa. Can you imagine, like, 150 years ago, how many pencils $250,000 <laughs> worth of them would have been? And, and probably other, you know, machines and things like that. It did $250,000 worth of damage. Uh, uh, so because of that, it moved from Midtown to a new factory here in Greenpoint. Yes, he set up a bigger headquarters here, a six-floor structure that is literally topped with pencils. There are 11 of them across the top of the facade, and it's crowned overhead by one of the, the Faber gold stars. And he employed hundreds of people, including a lot of women here in Greenpoint in the pencil-making business. Okay, so we have pencils, mm -hmm. we have ships, mm -hmm. we have oil. And all in this area that used to be an orchard, right? Right. Only decades before. It's already sounding incredibly busy but, at this time. But Greg, wait. We haven't even covered everything. Due to time constraints, we can't really go there. But there were a lot of other factories and producers in this area. There were breweries. There were drug companies. There were porcelain and glass companies. There were box makers. And that's great. And that makes you think of all the people working there, right? Mm -hmm. What wasn't so great is that already by the 1870s, people here and even across the way in Manhattan were complaining about unpleasant odors and residues. Smoke, right? Smoke and smells that were drifting all over the place. All of that industry, those factories and refineries fertilizer plants, sewers. They were releasing their waste directly into the river, into the East River, or into Newtown Creek. And so already, by the 1870s and 80s, you had departments of health that were investigating. You can only imagine how big business oil companies were getting a pass because they controlled oh, sure. everything up in Albany. But this creek, think about that Newtown Creek that you just said a few minutes ago. By the 1880s, if you went swimming there, you might come out with a bit of oil on you. And if you fished, you might just hook some poison fish. So what was to be done with Greenpoint? We'll explore Greenpoint in the 20th century after this.
In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So, Tom, in 1868, there was a bank built at the corner of Manhattan Avenue and Collier Street. That's the Greenpoint Savings Bank. That building is still there. That is no longer an actual active bank now. It's a capital one. It's a pretty building. It's a beautiful building. But back in 1919, Mm -hmm. as sort of promotion for their services, they authorized an official history of Greenpoint be written by the author William L. Felter, Ph.D. You know, back in the day when banks would commission someone to write a history of their neighborhood that they could just give out to customers. Well, beats a toaster. I'd it rather. Do, it ha- really does. Be I'd a rather toaster. have a history of the neighborhood. Well, maybe it's a toaster and a history book by Mr. Filter, PhD. So in nineteen, <laughs> it was in nineteen nineteen. I'm going to read an excerpt from his book. Speaking of Greenpoint Industry, quote: The advent of those manufacturing establishments brought in its train a change in the character of the nationalities of our people. Until about 1880, the settlers were of Anglo-Saxon, Dutch, and French extraction. But these were then rapidly supplanted by different sorts of laborers from the southern and eastern countries of Europe who brought with them strength and hope, but at the same time made a new and serious social problem. Churches for the Russian, the Slovak, the Hungarian, and the Pole were soon dedicated. The vast problem of the Americanization of these people remained untouched. Unquote. Now, the interesting thing is what a dated... There's some problems. There's a problem. It's a bit problematic. Yeah, well, it's painting that as some sort of concern, whereas today... We say we, that it's multicultural. Yeah, well, we, we actually praise the fact that it's this brand new community that's propping up that's retaining its own language and culture. In fact, that is today one of the defining traits of Greenpoint is the new arrivals from Eastern Europe, in particular, the new Polish population that would then move in beginning in the late 19th century and is the roots of Greenpoint's other big nickname, Little Poland. So Polish immigrants began to come to Greenpoint area beginning in the late 19th century. Now, we've talked about other Polish neighborhoods in New York, most notably the East Village, Mm -hmm. Lower East Side, when we talked about in our St. Mark's Place show. And in the Orchard Street show. Greenpoint had always relied on an immigrant workforce, but now at the end of the 19th century, there was this shift to Polish laborers who stayed on and built the foundation really for 
one of the most attractive aspects of this neighborhood, becoming one of the largest Polish communities in the United States. The intriguing thing about this neighborhood is that it's got its start in the late 19th century, but it would actually become larger and more developed into the 20th century, comprising about, I've seen some estimations, about 8 by 16 blocks along Nassau and Manhattan Avenue. So kind of on the edge of where the historic district is, which is, of course, the oldest buildings, the Polish immigrants who arrived here moved into the more affordable buildings around mm-hmm. those older structures. And so that's As a result, that's sort of the heart of the Polish community there. And you can still see these two different types of buildings existing even, what, on opposite sides of Manhattan Mm -hmm. Avenue today. Uh, Right. I mean, architecturally, you can see it. But even the newer buildings here have these spectacular signs all in Polish, even to this day. Now, of course, as more people are cramming themselves into this area in Greenpoint and in Williamsburg, by 1900, there was probably about a quarter of a million people that lived in this combined neighborhood, which was back in the day called the Eastern District. This, of course, required many more community amenities, things to take care of these larger numbers of people who are moving in. I'd also imagine schools and churches needed to be built. Sure. but In fact, by 1874, the largest, I think the most famous church, if I could say that, in Greenpoint, St. Anthony of Padua, was built in 1874 on Manhattan Avenue. It's still there today. It's still an active, lively Catholic church. But there were other big improvements that came to the neighborhood as well, especially after the creation of the five boroughs and the creation of Greater New York, where now all of these independent neighborhoods and cities became Brooklyn the borough. That would happen after 1898. For instance, in 1906, they built a park just to the south that kind of separates Greenpoint and Williamsburg today. That was called Greenpoint Park. But just three years later, in 1909, they renamed it after the district's most powerful senatorial figure, like a major name in local politics, and who did much to improve the area. And his name was Patrick Henry McCarran. Uh-huh. And thus, the park became McCarran Park. It's funny because McCarran Park is really in that spot, right? That juncture between Greenpoint and Williamsburg. And historically, that makes sense as well, because this was really part of the waterway, um, an extension of the Bushwick Creek that jutted Mm -hmm. in, and they would later fill this in with landfill. Yeah, the park is built on landfill. Now, in 1936, the park got a major upgrade in the form of a public swimming pool, the first of several such projects that were overseen by Parks Commissioner Robert Moses. Now, since we're going to talk Moses... I wish we had a little bell or something to (laughs) ring. We haven't talked about him in a while. We haven't actually talked about Moses in a while. There should be um, like a sound, an automatic sound, like a a trumpet or Or like a curmudgeon. We could just bring some... (laughs) Well, since we're talking Moses, Mm -hmm. we should talk a little bit about highways and roads because there's a couple key elements here in Greenpoint that are important, and those are bridges. The first bridge, more along the east side of Greenpoint, is the Kosciuszko Bridge. It was built originally as the Meeker Avenue Bridge in 1939, was renamed for the Revolutionary War hero Thaddeus Kosciuszko, primarily because of the Polish population of Greenpoint, Mm -hmm. because of their pressure and sort of in honor of them. And the same thing happened a little over a decade later in 1954 with the construction of the Pulaski Bridge, which is also named for a Polish Revolutionary War figure, Casimir Pulaski. 
And the Pulaski Bridge is connecting Greenpoint in the north with Long Island City, just north of it. And if I could just editorialize here for a Please, second, it yeah. is one of my favorite bridges, principally because, of course, it's also a pedestrian bridge. And it's... The, oh, there's a pedestrian section. There's a section to it. Right. It's a regular bridge that you can walk along the side and, you know, enjoy the fabulous aromas of the Newtown Creek. <laughs> but um, you can go from Long Island City to Greenpoint, I, I love walking between the boroughs right. over a bridge. Yeah, you can take the E train, get out at the station there, and walk over the bridge down into Greenpoint. But in speaking about Moses and roadways, I mean, I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention the BQE, which forms, sure. mm-hmm. uh, w- which is one of his lasting gifts to the city, <laughs> gets us all over the place, and which forms really basically the southwestern border of the neighborhood. So I've gotten us here to like the 1950s. I just want to like paint a little bit of a picture of maybe what Greenpoint, the Polish area of Greenpoint might have been like in the 1950s through the eyes of a young child that was born there in 1953. Her name was Patricia May Andrzejewski. This was she was born 1953, 20 years later as a former Juilliard student, she would be inspired from seeing Eliza Minnelli concert to go from classical music to rock and pop, and she would change her name to Pat Benatar. Whoa. (laughs) So Pat Benatar is a Greenpoint resident. Right, but Pat Benatar went from classical to pop because of Liza Minnelli? Yeah, that was her major inspiration. Not to to sidetrack the the history here, but I think that's a really interesting detail. Yeah, there's so much to that story. No, so uh, imagine what life would have been like for young Patricia running around the neighborhood here, like the th- types of things she would have seen, because it was around this time after World War II that industry actually began to decline throughout this whole neighborhood. And some of these factories began shutting down, including the pencil factory, right. which closed down in 1956. But, you know, the the Polish community here, was it was still very close-knit, so it still would have been a warm, wonderful place to, to grow up. And certainly would have seemed like a very different planet compared to Manhattan across the water. She would have perhaps most likely, as a a young kid, gone to the Meserol Theater, at a movie theater at 723 Manhattan Avenue. And the only reason I'm bringing it up is because the theater is still there. It's no longer a movie theater. It's now a drugstore. But the bones of the building are still there. And there's Mm -hmm. even a big disco ball. Or was last time I checked. Uh, it's a very in magi- the drugstore. In the drugstore, <laughs> it's one of the more <laughs> curious buildings of Greenpoint, and everyone should should check it out. You know, and and buy your paper towels there or whatever. But it's seven twenty three Manhattan Avenue. Well, when when you started in on this anecdote about the young girl, I thought you were going to bring up young Margaret Margaret Wise Brown, who in who was born in Greenpoint in nineteen ten and grew up on Milton Street, and. We'll, we don't have time to talk about Margaret, but let's just say that a few decades later, she would pen a children's book that you and I probably both grew up with and, and millions still read tonight or are put to sleep with. Good Night Moon. So Margaret Brown is also a Greenpoint resident. Margaret oh, Wise excellent. Brown, yes. Good Night Moon. Well, good night to pleasant experiences here on the outskirts of Greenpoint because by know. the 60s and 70s, of course, with all these empty industrial buildings, you can imagine all the decay along the edges. The Polish center of Greenpoint was still very much active and was the population was still growing or it was in great flux because of new immigration laws in the mid-1960s encouraged a lot of immigration. But then a lot of people who were older generations were moving to the suburbs. 
as a result, you had that court community, but on the edges, you still had street gangs. It was still a, a rough neighborhood, an unpleasant place to be. And I'm not even talking about the condition of Newtown Creek, okay? So now we have an over right. a century of industry. Because in 1870, if they're already talking in the press about the stinky Newtown Creek... What is it like in the 1960s? Right. So putrid smells next to vacant, empty warehouses and industrial factories, right? Throughout the decades here, they would find out later, large amounts of petroleum were actually leaking into Newtown Creek. They would later estimate it, it would be 17 to 30 million gallons Greater in volume to the legendary Exxon Valdez spill of 1989, which was one event, and this was right, over a this period is a of slow time. leak. Right. So the Greenpoint oil spill, as they call it today, was first discovered in 1978, but it had been leaking slowly over the decades, creating a f- absolutely foul, unsightly, and dangerous place in New York City. I mean, Tom, do you remember us complaining about Collect Pond mm-hmm. uh, in Lower Manhattan? Putrid old Collect Pond. Yes, in the early 19th century. It kind of was like that. I mean, there were even animal rendering plants that they were tossing body parts here into Newtown Creek. It would burn your eyes if you were sort of walking past, if you were walking over the Pulaski Bridge. I, I assume not as many people used to do it back in the day as mm. they do now. And by this time in 1967, the Newtown Creek Wastewater Treatment Plant had already opened up at this time. So you have this pretty toxic environment, it Mm -hmm. sounds like. Plus, you have this new wastewater treatment plant that's opened, although very quickly, it's totally not up to regulation, right, with the passage of the clean water standards. It, by the 1980s and 1990s, is confronting huge issues And the city realizes that it needs to do something. It needs to completely rehabilitate the plants. In 1991, they announced that they would build a new wastewater treatment plant here that would be the largest in the city. And it would treat not just the the water and the sewage of this area of Greenpoint, of course, in Williamsburg, but also of Manhattan, right, and parts of Queens. From the New York Times on October 31st, 1991, quote, It is a terrible event, said Irene Klementowitz, a leader of concerned citizens of Greenpoint, which has fought any expansion of the plant. Quote, in this community, whatever you mention, we already have it. We have the homeless. We have one of three municipal incinerators. We have the Midtown Tunnel nearby. And we have more carbon monoxide and pollutants than almost anywhere else in New York. This plant is for Manhattan. Let them build it there. (laughs) (laughs) which, you know, gets the point across. But later in the article, they say, last year, the state threatened to ban all new construction in much of lower Manhattan and parts of Brooklyn and Queens because the sewage treatment in those areas had become so inadequate. Newtown Creek serves the northern half of Brooklyn, parts of Queens, and all of Manhattan below 14th Street on the west side and 72nd Street on the east side. So this, you know, basically... Greenpoint was taking care of everybody's, you know, uh, I'll be polite here, crud. It was the kidneys of the city. I mean, or the intestines of the city. I mean, it was something. Ugh. It was some body part that we'd probably not like to think about. It was filtering, filtering waste for the, you know, for a big chunk of the city. You know, and it took a lot of advocacy, tough negotiations, but the city was pressured into constructing a more neighborhood-friendly water treatment plant. Today, the plant that opened is 
is a modern marvel. If you if you oh, walk yeah. by, it's the it's the largest of the city's fourteen water treatment plants, and they were forced, among other things, uh, to make it more sort of neighborhood friendly to include elements of public art into mm-hmm. it. So you might notice, uh, I'm sure you've noticed at night that those giant digester eggs, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> those g- giant containers mm-hmm. uh, are lit up in blue as kind of a uh, sort of an public art. I think I would go even as far as saying it's one of the most attractive water waste treatment plants in the world. Well, it's a pretty blue. Those eggs are pretty <laughs> blue. I'll give you that. But it has it has other elements. There's a nature walk uh, that I took just yesterday. I was out walking along the Newtown Creek uh, nature walk, which aside from the fact that you're next to a wastewater treatment plant, mm-hmm. can still be kind of you know romantic. As it could it can offer a sort of pleasant stroll, and they have some placards, you know, to explain the wildlife that is existing hopefully once again <laughs> in Newtown Creek because they're cleaning it up. However, uh, I think it would be a farce to suggest that the entire creek and waterway is cleaned up because it's still kind of a mess. And and they have signs posted as you're along this nature walk, alerting you to the danger of flooding and spill off in case of heavy rains and such that raw sewage might go right back out into the creek. Well, six years ago, it was declared a Superfund site. Um, the creek. The creek, meaning that it is a place of concern and that federal money is now going into it to help clean it up. Right. I read an article on DNAinfo.com, you know, the mm-hmm. website. Great website. About a man who swam in uh, the Newtown Creek last December uh, just to draw awareness to the lousy conditions of the water. And did they find his remains? <laughs> no, he did emerge, but he said that he was like puffy and his skin was irritated from the swim, of course, and it smelled like oil the entire time and sewage. And he said in patches it smelled eerily of cinnamon toast. Ugh. You know, that's the worst stuff. The stuff that smells like cinnamon toast. I'd be more concerned about cinnamon toast crunch, actually, in Newtown Creek. That really says a lot about cinnamon toast crunch, actually, that it smells like the most putrid of uh, of foul toxic fluids. No, it's actually, in, in cinnamon toast crunch's defense, um, I can't eat just one bowl. But seriously, the spill, the super fun side, the cleanup, it is... It's taken decades. It will probably take much longer. And it's still working its way through years of legal disputes over the extent of who's responsible, who's paying for all of this, right? Because all of these oil companies who have been there, who are still there, the industries who have been responsible, some of them are no longer in operation. The ones who are still there are pointing the finger at each other. So it's taking a long time to clean that up. But there's an extra burden now to clean that up even faster because there are new developments and new people moving into the neighborhood in the past 10 years. Right, because in 2005, there was this giant rezoning, right, that happened under Bloomberg, not just in Greenpoint, but also in Williamsburg, famously, Mm -hmm. all along the waterfront, in which 175 blocks were rezoned from industrial over to residential. It's funny because now, today, Williamsburg is almost completely developed the waterfront, right? Right. With all these brand new condos. And this is happening now in Greenpoint along those streets, like West, if you're over on West. I mean, when I was over there the other day, it looked, and I I called you and said this, Mm -hmm. it 
made me feel like I was back in Berlin in 2001, you know, where you just look down a street and all you saw were expensive looking apartment buildings going up. And yet the street itself was kind of vacant because it wasn't yet a place where people were were living because it's all new right. development. It's just a construction zone. Mm-hmm. So there are many sides to this issue. It's obviously very complicated. One of the upsides to all of this is that one of the stipulations is that these developers would also be paying for new parkland along the water. So there are new parks that have opened New places for people in the neighborhood to get some fresh air, like down in the Transmitter Park, WNYC Transmitter Park, which opened in 2010, um, on the site of the former WNYC radio, AM radio transmitters. It's very beautiful there. There's a little pier that you can you know walk on the edge and look over at the beautiful Manhattan skyline. Right. And it's cool to see you know the old WPA built transmitter building mm-hmm. right there in the center of the park that was active from 1937 to 1990. And there are more parklands along there that are under construction. So there were also height bonuses awarded to developers who included apartments for, quote, low-income tenants. There's a formula to Mm -hmm. determine what that is. Meaning that basically, if they put in lower-cost rentals in their buildings, they could build higher as you got closer to the water. So, I mean, you know, there's some ethical debates possible (laughs) around that situation. Needless to say. (laughs) Back to the pencil factory, Mm -hmm. you know, the Faber, the famous Faber factory. Eberhard Faber. Part of that building is a co-working space called Pencil Works, which is really cool. If you go around, and the Pencil Factory actually had many different buildings. Some of them have already been converted to luxury condos. When I was kicking around the streets, mm-hmm. around the corner from the factory, I saw this low-slung, like two-floor brick building uh, that looked very chic, dark windows. And I went in expecting it to be condos. I peered in the windows to be that creepy guy on the street. <laughs> yes. And instead, to my surprise, I looked way down, way down. I could see people working at desks way down uh. below in this very cool, very sort of eco open space. So I Googled the address to figure out what in the world was going on inside this unmarked building. Do you know what it was, Craig? I'm afraid to even guess. <laughs> no, it's actually, it's, it's, it's a wonderful organization. It's the headquarters of Kickstarter. Oh, yes. So, I mean, a lot of tech companies have have moved to Brooklyn, to Williamsburg, Bushwick, and now to Greenpoint. Right. And bringing new jobs with them. But this new developments as the, you know, I guess the quote unquote hipsters move in here and people Mm -hmm. of higher income move into this neighborhood. Unfortunately, it's it's doing things to the rent for the people who already live there, making things a little bit more expensive. Oh, certainly, because it's giving developers an incentive as well to buy up existing housing stock that's there, right? And and if it's not protected, rip it down and build some modern, new luxury Mm -hmm. condo. One very bad thing that's happening right now is that a lot of the Polish community is it's sort of getting smaller. A lot of these shops and restaurants that catered to the Polish community are closing up and, you know, they're being replaced with artisanal jelly stores and, and mm. organic coffee shops and mm-hmm. what have you. And OK, so it's not it, it's not closing down. It's not like it was in the 1960s and 70s, perhaps. But this sea change, I, I think, is is damaging the neighborhood in a long-term way, I think, by cutting into the traditional communities that were there. Right. But there are also organizations that you can check out that are working on this very issue. One that I need to mention is called Preservation Greenpoint. 
the organization works with the historic district. They're they're completely focused on preserving the historic buildings of Greenpoint, reviewing applications uh, for buildings that perhaps should be protected. They're always looking for volunteers. They have a Facebook page. It's a great organization. That's Preservation Greenpoint. And again, for a great read on the history of Greenpoint, I strongly recommend Jeffrey Cobb's new book that's just out called Greenpoint Brooklyn's Forgotten Past. I picked this up, Greg, uh, just a couple days ago at the Word Bookstore over on Franklin. Another great... In, in Greenpoint. Another great Greenpoint establishment. Join us on our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have some pictures and more information about the history of Greenpoint Brooklyn. Also join us on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram. And of course, we'd like to say a special thank you to the more than 300 listeners who have now joined us on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys, where by joining us with even a couple bucks a month, you're able to access our special bonus podcasts. Uh, for this particular episode, the bonus podcast will be Tom and I riffing on the year in award-winning films that happen to be set in Brooklyn. So mm-hmm. if you want to hear us debate the movies like Brooklyn and Carol and Bridge of Spies, become a Patreon member. Yes, because Greg, I don't think you and I see eye to eye on the film Brooklyn in particular. No, no, I think that we have different opinions. Um, some of us see film uh, save as it, an- Save it, save it, save <laughs> it. We'll be recording that later. So thank you so much for joining us. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. It's me, your barista. So you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, now in stores. It's foaming delicious. 